John chapter 5, I'm going to read 19 through 30, and then I'm going to read 40 through 47. John 5, starting in verse 19. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that Himself is doing, and greater works than these will He show Him, so that you will marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. For the Father judges no one, but all have given, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son as they honor the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes it, and him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, for he has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Verse 30, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And verse 40, yet you who refuse to come to me, that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Pray with me. Father, we pray this morning that you would show us your truth and that your truth would set us free. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Blaise Pascal was a 17th century French philosopher, physicist, mathematician, who wrote a number of things from a Christian religious perspective. Probably the crown jewel of all of Pascal's works were his thoughts entitled Ponces. And he wrote a number of really unique and genius things about the Christian faith in this document. One of the things that Pascal is famous for uh, among philosophers and apologists, an apologist is simply a, a fancy way of saying those who defend the Christian faith, is this thing entitled Pascal's Wager. Pascal's Wager was a pretty simple 50-50 kind of dynamic that appealed really to what Pascal would say, pretty low-level logic. He said this was not so much the deepest, most articulate, most fantastic defense 
of the faith that one could give. However, Pascal himself said this might be the best defense of the faith. This wager that he hypothetically created. Specifically, Pascal said this about the wager. This is conclusive. And if men are capable of any truth, this is it. So what is this? Well, Peter Kreeft, who is a philosophy professor at Boston College, who is a Christian, there is such thing, by the way, uh, which is pretty fantastic, and I would encourage you to read Peter Kreeft on a number of different levels. Um, I've read him uh, somewhat extensively on suffering, and he's really fantastic, um, especially from a philosophical and apologetic perspective. But Peter Kreeft summarizes Pascal's wager in the following ways. He gives three different examples. One would be this. You lie there dying, and you hear of a miracle drug. You know, and this is not uh, too hypothetical, right? People are on trial ju- drugs seemingly all the time. And the idea is you've got a 50-50 chance of living if this drug works. And let's say there's a minimal price to pay to receive this drug. And remember, you're dying. And this drug has a 50-50 chance of working. And it's got a minimal cost. Would it not be logical to simply try it? Or another way you could take Pascal's wager would be this. You hear reports that your house is on fire and you're not home. You could choose to ignore the reports, 50-50, they're either true or false. Or you could take the wager, the gamble, which is relatively minimal, and just go check on your house to see if the reports are true or false. One more, suppose there's a sweepstakes worth millions of dollars. There are two tickets left. One of them is a winning ticket, and it costs a dollar. 50-50 chance. Would you buy the ticket? Kreeft says this, Pascal well knew that it was a low ladder. If you believe in God only as a bet, that is certainly not a deep mature, or even adequate faith, but it is something. It is a start. It is enough to damn the tide of atheism. If God does not exist, it does not matter how you wager, for there is nothing to win after death and nothing to lose after death. But if God does exist, your only chance of winning eternal happiness is to believe And your only chance of losing it is to refuse to believe. Pascal himself said it this way, I should be much more afraid of being mistaken and then finding out that Christianity is true than of being mistaken and believing it to be true. What do you have to lose? Pascal's saying. If it's true, great. If it's not, what did you lose? It's a famous conversation with another philosopher, Martin Buber. And he demanded among a Christian friend of his to prove the existence of God. He said, can you absolutely 100% with all certainty prove the existence of God to his friend? And his friend rightly said, 
No. I can't, with all certainty, 100% prove the existence of God. But he responded to Buber and he said, can you be sure there's not a God? And Buber, an atheist, said he never went to embrace God. However, there was not a day that went by that that question did not haunt him. Can you be sure that there's not a God? In a much more contemporary way, there's an author named Douglas Couplin, who's not a Christian, who wrote a book entitled Life After God, and he said this. Now, here's my secret. I tell it to you with an openness of heart that I doubt I shall ever achieve again. So I pray that you are in a quiet room as you hear these words. My secret is that I need God, that I am sick and can no longer make it alone. I need God to help me give because I am no longer capable of giving, to help me be kind as I am no longer seem capable of kindness, to help me love as I seem beyond being able to love. I need God. The entire gospel of John is written under one overarching goal, so that you may believe. John says this explicitly, and John says this implicitly. I am writing this so that you may believe. The question this morning is, do you? Do you believe ultimately? And do you believe continually? More specifically, John 5, the section of Scripture that we're looking at, us, looking at this morning, is calling us to see Jesus, calling us to look to Jesus, calling us to believe upon Him as we see Him revealed here through an intimate connection to the Father. John 5 is Jesus espousing this beautiful truth and calling us to believe in Him because He is intimately connected to God the Father. Overarching truth, John 5. Jesus is connected to God the Father. Jesus the Son is connected to God the Father, and He is calling us to believe, to bolster belief that already exists, to engender belief that is not there yet, to believe, and even as the text tells us, to marvel at Jesus' connection, which is intimately a part of the Father. See, there's resistance on so many different levels to seeing Jesus for who He is, for looking to Him, for believing in Him as one who is connected to the Father. It seems to me that Jesus has become too benign. Or maybe He's too familiar or too misunderstood. And Christians, unfortunately, don't do a very good job of engendering belief in those who don't have it when it comes to Christ. I think we could all, to some degree, resonate with what Gandhi was noted to say, I like your Christ. I don't like your Christians. They are not very much like your Christ. 
I wonder if Christians were more like Christ. People like Gandhi would be drawn into belief. I wonder if people saw this connection that Jesus has to the Father, that it would bolster belief, that it would engender belief, that we would marvel as we see this intimate connection that Jesus the Son has with God the Father. I want us to unpack this in two ways. We see the connection that Christ the Son has to God the Father and as we see Christ's dependence on the Father and the power that Jesus finds with the Father. So through Christ's connection, through Jesus' connection to the Father, it manifests itself through dependence or independence and also in power. Let's look here at Jesus's, Jesus the Son's dependence on the Father. Did you catch that right out of the gates in verse 19? The Son can do nothing on His own. And then it ends again in verse 30. That the Son can do nothing apart from the will of the Father. What majesty and what modesty. What subordination in the midst of equality. For here, Jesus, the Son of God, to say He can do nothing. It's not a very easy phrase to say, by the way. In a humanistic society, in the Western world, in a wealthy, capitalistic society, the phrase, I can do nothing, is not uttered very often. And it's felt in our hearts even less. But here we have the Son of God saying, out of dependence that he can do nothing. This is not that hard for us to imagine when we think about it by way of a parent and child relationship. I never will forget on March the 15th, 2006, as Emily and I were driving away from St. Mary's Hospital in North Knoxville and getting on the interstate with this thing (laughs) called a baby in the back seat. Uh, As we hit the interstate, uh, we weren't talking, and we had this feeling that people will often describe like, is this legal to leave this facility called a hospital with a baby? And we weren't talking, but at the same time, we both were crying. And I think that those tears represented a lot, but one thing they clearly represented was a great weight and burden. Because we had a keen awareness that that thing, our son William, was utterly dependent upon us. And that was really humbling. Well, here you see this son. It just happens to be the son of God. Jesus incarnate, proclaiming that he is utterly dependent on the Father. Paul Miller in his book, The Praying Life, says, Jesus is without question the most dependent human being who ever lived. How'd you like if someone said that about you? You wouldn't like it, but you should. 
Because he can't do life on his own, he prays, and he prays, and he prays. Luke tells us that Jesus would regularly withdraw to desolate places and pray. Why? Because he could not do life on his own. How much more? Right? You've probably heard me say this before, and I promise you will hear me say it again. That this, in my own life, is my story and is my song. To continually find comfort in the dependence of Christ and the way that Jesus the Son abided with the Father and the way the implication for us to abide in the Son and the way that He abides in the Father. In Isaiah chapter 50, Jesus was in the Old Testament. Okay? He was not created. He was begotten. He took on flesh in the New Testament, but He always was. And so you actually see remnants of and even at times pretty explicit representations of Christ in the Old Testament. One of those is is in Isaiah chapter 50 in this section of the servant songs where you hear Isaiah prophesying about a servant. And the servant that Isaiah prophesies about is Jesus. And in Isaiah 50, you hear this servant speaking about himself. So Isaiah 50 verses 4 through 6 that I'm getting ready to read to you is Jesus in the Old Testament speaking and testifying about himself autobiographically. And this is what Jesus says about himself. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught so that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning, he awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord God helps me. This was Jesus' task. Pretty simple. Sustain those who are weary with a word. That was Jesus' task. Oh, and by the way, the word is not just verbal. You are the word. So all you have to do is verbally and in your life, Jesus, no big deal, embody sustenance and life for those who are weary. Nobody has a harder job, I promise you. No one has ever had a higher calling than the person of Christ. He felt this weight of what he was called to do. And what did he do as he experienced this weight and this calling? Morning by morning, he awakened his ear as one who was taught so that he may sustain those who are weary with a word. He had a keen awareness of his dependence. He knew that apart from abiding in the Father, the salvation of the world had no chance. So once again, let's ask this great interpretive question, one of my favorite interpretive questions. If Jesus, the sinless, spotless Son of God, fully God, fully man, needed in the flesh, morning by morning, 
to awaken his ear in order to listen so he could be taught, so he could fulfill his mission if he needed to sit at the Father's feet. How much more? Like, who do you think you are? Who do I think I am? I can promise you this, just for starters, we're not sinless. And then maybe we'll back that up with, we're not God. Unfortunately, we think that we are. That's why we don't practice the things that Jesus practiced. And we need to practice what John the Baptist practiced because he understood something we did not, which was this simple confession, I am not the Christ. Cannot help but to be compelled by the dependence that the Son had upon the Father. And this is a little paradoxical, but from that dependence, we see great power. Right? So we see the Son uniquely and intimately connected to the Father here, and which calls us to believe in that connection. And through that connection, we see this really remarkable dependence that the Son has on the Father. But out of that dependence, we also see this remarkable power. So much so that the text at two different points uses the word marvel. It's as if Jesus is saying, hey, I'm just going to communicate some things to you about me. And I want you to marvel. Not arrogantly, not pridefully. It reminds me, recently at school, Abigail ran for student council, and of course we helped her on her speech, and different people did their little speeches, and then we went to heard them to hear them, and you know, you've got these elementary school kids running for a particular office, espousing why they are qualified right to fulfill the office of secretary or vice president or president of Bearden Elementary, which is not dissimilar to, right, like on a larger scale, political speeches at large, people are seeking to say, hey, this is why you ought to believe in me. This is why you ought to vote for me. The way that I'm interpreting John 5, it's as if Jesus is saying this, but he's not apologetic about it. And he's not even seeking to be particularly persuasive. And he sure is not offering false promises. He's just saying, let me tell you a few things about me. As you contemplate what it might mean to believe in me and follow me. And you can take or leave it. You believe in me, you have life. It's pretty matter of fact about this. You don't, there's death. I want you to believe in me. I want to compel you to believe in me, but this is the way that it is. And this really is John 5 because there's so much opposition going on in this time for Jesus and there's so much confusion and there's so much misunderstanding. People really are at a crisis culturally and spiritually, not dissimilar to us today. And Christ is saying, this is what is true about me. What are you going to do about it? Ultimately and continually. It also reminds me of a scene in one of my favorite movies that I've mentioned before and will mention again. Hoosiers. Bill Simmons is a great writer. Writes a lot on culture and even more specifically on sports. Concurs with me. 
which is important, uh, that it's the greatest sports movie ever. And there's so many things in the film that are fantastic. Uh, great acting, great story, um, great sport. Uh, basketball, small Indiana town, uh, seeking to play with the big guys under you know, a new coach who's unconventional. And there's a lot of resurrection and redemption throughout the film, both on micro levels and macro levels. That's one of the things that I love about it. But one of the things that happens early on in the film, you see two threads within a narrative developing. One is there's this new coach and people don't really trust him. And two is the best player is not on the team. And everybody is seeking to bridge the gap like, look, we don't really think you can get it done, but if you can get Jimmy Chitwood to play on the team, then you might be able to get it done. So why don't you try to get Jimmy Chitwood to play on the team? And it kind of culminates in this fantastic scene where Coach Norman Dale, played by Gene Hackman, goes out to Jimmy Chitwood's home as Jimmy is shooting hoops on this dirt patch in Indiana farmland, just kind of an iconic scene on so many different levels. And Jimmy is shooting and making every shot. And Coach is just catching rebounds, and he's just kind of chewing the fat with him to some degree. And at one point, he grabs the ball, and he says, Jimmy, let me tell you something. Nobody ever wanted to win more than I do. I want to win at all cost. And essentially what he's communicating is, I'm going to win. I need you to know one thing. I don't care whether you play on my team or not. And then he gives him the ball back, and then Jimmy misses the next shot. And he sends him into this contemplation. And what Jimmy realizes at that point is, this guy's the man. And he believes to some degree right there what he said. He's the man. He's going to win. He's going to make it happen with or without me. I think I'd like to be a part of this. And indeed he does. And they do. I think in a less terse or sharp way, that's how I interpret what Jesus is saying here in John 5. He's saying, look, here's the deal. I'm a winner. I'm rooted in humility. I'm rooted in dependence. I'm empowered by the Father. I'm in the midst of living a sinless life, and I'm about to go die a cruel death on a Roman cross, and then there's another thing that's going to happen after that. They're going to bury me, but I'm not going to stay in the grave. I'm going to be resurrected. I'm going to live forever. Do you want to be on my team? Because you see, when you're on my team, what happens to me happens to you. And you too will experience new life and resurrection. He speaks about this explicitly in this text. We see that Christ gives the power of new life already and not yet. Did you see that in there? And you can read your text later when you go home. But there are themes of resurrection clearly rising up. He's saying there is resurrection happening right now, presently, already in micro ways. But there's also this great resurrection that is not yet being fulfilled on a macro level that's coming. And I have power to give life. Verse 24 specifically calls to action. And it says... Are you listening? Because here's how you attach to me. 
Christ says. It's pretty simple. You hear and believe. You don't have to be a good person. You don't have to be moralistic. I'd really discourage you from thinking legalism is the way to me. Simply stated, if you hear and believe, you receive eternal life. And Christ has the power to say that. The question is, do you hear it? You remember the Isaiah text? We hear Jesus listening to the words of truth from the Father. This passage, this verse is beckoning us to listen. Are you listening to this truth that Christ is the one that gives life? Verse 26 goes on to say, an hour is coming and is here now. Already not yet. When there will be resurrection. Christ is empowered to breathe life. Christ is also, this text teaches us, empowered and has the responsibility of bringing judgment. Frederick Bruner, one of my favorite commentators in the Gospels, he's a Lutheran, says this about the promise of life and the reality of judgment. This promise is so good, so extensive, that is, of life and judgment, yet so simple that it is at first hard to believe. Notice Jesus' modesty. Believe in the one who sent me. Jesus does not displace God. Rather, he represents God. One might have thought that the gospel's deep and high gift of fellowship comes with the living God without any fear of judgment would require the fulfilling of deep or high or special spiritual conditions. You hear what he's saying? He's saying, look... If you want to fellowship with Jesus and you want to escape judgment, one would think it must come with deep and high spiritual conditions in order for the recipient to measure up to such great benefits. It does not. Listening and trusting are two primal responses in human beings. Think about a child. The combination is part of the joy of the gospel that was rediscovered by the Protestant Reformation. Individuals, families, and churches are reformed wherever the simplicity of this transaction occurs. You fear judgment? There literally is an easy escape. Hear and believe. And then you can embrace what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Do you hear? Do you believe? Do you see the power that Christ has to instill life? Do you see the power that Christ has as the judge? You've got an inside connection, right? It's like a family business. You know the judge. It's as if the judge winks at you and you actually don't have to show up at court. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The last thing I want us to see, this is pretty fantastic, 
in this text, and this is part of the text that you do have before you, thankfully. We see Christ's power here manifested in the fact that He gives life and He has power over judgment. But the last thing we see is that Christ has power over the law. And this is important for us to realize. And follow me here. Let's look starting in verse 41. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from another and do not seek the glory that comes only from God? And he's talking at this point about various other teachers and various other people proclaiming to be the Messiah and other people following and believing them. And this is at the point when Jesus is doing a better impression of Norman Dale. And what he's getting ready to say is, I'm better. And let me tell you why I'm better. Listen, verse 45. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses. Now, this is going to throw them for a loop because they love Moses. These Old Testament Jews loved Moses and, in fact, had a very hard time with Jesus because they elevated Moses above Jesus. But the problem with elevating Moses above Jesus is that Moses represents something specifically. You know what Moses represents? The law. And so they worshipped Moses, but in reality, they worshipped the law, and so they were looking to Moses slash the law in order to find life and escape judgment. That's a problem. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you. It's actually the one you're looking to to save you. The law does not save you. The law accuses you. And you've set your hope on that. For if you believed in Moses, really, you would believe in me. For he wrote of me. If you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Here's the deal. Jesus was challenging them and He's challenging us. You have put your hope in the law. You have put your hope in being moral. You have put your hope in being legalistic. You have put your hope in being good. You think you find life in being religious. You think you escape death because you're a pretty good person or better than so and so. And what Jesus is saying is, Don't be fooled. There is no hope in the law. Because you know what the law really does? It shows you that you're hopeless. And it points you to me, who actually can give life and resurrection. That's what he's saying. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son into the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us through Christ. 
For those who walk according to the flesh, but not. For those who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Do you marvel at this? Do you see Jesus? Do you believe in the dependence that He has on the Father and the power that He has manifested in the Father? Power so much that we can place our hope in Him because He has overcome all things. Pray with me. Father, we thank You for Your Son, Jesus. Jesus, we thank You for Your self-awareness. We thank You for Your dependence. We thank You for Your power. And we thank You for Your grace in teaching us more about who You are truly. I pray that we would wager to believe in You ultimately and continually. I pray that You would help us to receive ultimately life and resurrection and that You would help us to continually receive life and resurrection so that we may escape judgment. I pray that our hope would not be in Moses and the law, but that our hope would be in You. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.